to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com thanks for tuning in sluts and scholars is a sex positive shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter while we love to give advice and resources please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta Heidegger, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I'm excited to welcome Kate Lurie, LMFT. She is a sex-positive licensed marriage and family therapist with a specialty in non-monogamous, kink, LGBTQ, and sex worker communities. In addition to her master's in marriage and family therapy, she is also a registered art therapist and has a second master's in business administration. She has been practicing psychotherapy for 17 years and has additional training in EMDR and the trauma resiliency model for the treatment of trauma. She's been featured in everything from BuzzFeed videos, she's been a guest on Playboy Radio and a bunch of podcasts like American Sex and Sex Nerd Sandra. She's written for Good Vibrations and Hollywood Magazine and is a frequent public speaker. She's currently writing her first book due to be published at the end of 2020. Congratulations. Privately, she has been connected to the non-monogamy world and kink community communities since 2003, so she definitely understands a lot of the hurdles and massive emotional growth and amazing joy that these worlds provide, and now her private practice is located in Encino, California. Hi. Hello. Thank you for having me on. You have a great podcast. (laughs) Thank you. I'm happy to have you, and we've been colleagues for some time, and I wish we could be doing this in person, but obviously COVID-19 is happening, so we are doing this via audio, Um, but I'm glad to get to talk to you. I know that we've talked about your book in other times that we've hung out, so I know you've been working on it really hard for a while. So yeah, tell me about your new book. Okay, well, my book is a reflection of my private practice, but um, so a large percent of my clients are non-monogamous. So the book is Mm -hmm. about non-monogamy, and it's through, um, a a lot of it is through an attachment theory lens and um, an attachment injury lens, Um, and it doesn't pull any punches. Uh, basically a lot of my clients, they come in and they, my clients are super bright. So they've already read the ethical slut opening up more than two. And they're like, okay, those books were great, but they're not really helping us with the stuff we're encountering. Like we need something deeper, you know? And so, and that's what I provide as a therapist, but also this book is kind of like, if those books are the one one this is like the, the next level, you know, where it goes deeper and um, talks about the hardest things that happen within non-monogamy. With, with any culture, you know, that gets some bigotry, and certainly the non-monogamous community does, we tend to wave our pom-poms. And, but at this point, it's gone mainstream enough that I think we can start to, uh, like, reveal on a deeper level the things that are hard and tackle those things. Yeah, I think there's a lot of books like out there about non-monogamy, but like you said, a lot of them are maybe basic and kind of dated. So I'm glad to hear that there's a new one coming out. And just kind of going back to basics for a second, though, you talked about attachment theory or coming from an attachment theory lens. And for people who don't know what that is, can you talk a little bit about attachment theory and, and different kinds of attachment? Yeah, so attachment theory uh, comes from the standpoint that are, and, and I'm going to speak kind of through my words, not exactly how it, um, you might encounter it if you Google it. Um, 
Attachment theory basically says that our relationships in the past form how we attach in our present relationships. So, you know, if you had a neglectful, um, so, so some of the attachment styles are a withdrawn attachment style, a secure attachment style, and an anxious attachment style. People that are secure have a secure attachment style in non-monogamy. Non-monogamy tends to be easier for them. Um, because they have a backstory usually that gives them a sense that the world will have their back, that they will be safe, um, and that things will work out. And if even someone were to break up with them, that they would find someone else to love them and they would be okay. And so a secure attachment style goes into non-monogamy in a pretty resilient place. They don't tend to struggle as much. Um, an anxious attachment style. Um, a lot of times in anxious attachment styles, they came from a parent that might have been around them for, you know, part of the time, but not all the time. So they were kind of anxiously wondering if mom or dad were going to show up, that kind of thing. And so that anxious attachment style comes into non-monogamy. And then the withdrawn attachment style, your, your typical example of that is, you know, like if I were to really dial up an example, you know, might be that rock star that has a girl in every port, you know, that, um, that even when he comes back to his wife, he finds an excuse to sleep on the sofa and he hasn't had sex with her, but he's having sex with, you know, uh, he's not really, he's finding all these ways to disconnect from her. You know what I mean? Oh, uh, I've never dated anyone like that. What are you talking about? <laughs> I used to love that type of guy. Oh my God. I used I know. to love that guy. That's like, I mean, I think it's like the, the bad boy dream in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, and, and I, I hate know, using that word like bad, quote unquote, bad boy. But like you said, it's the person who's maybe not emotionally available, who might be like hot and sexy, but is like dangerous because you don't trust like where they're going to be and when. Exactly. And, and let's just face it, us ladies, we've been brainwashed from the time that we're little to that we're supposed to like that guy. I mean, so I'm 51. I remember that one of the first things I saw was Greece and, you know, and, and John Travolta's character, he wasn't available or Matt Dillon and the outsiders. And he was a bad boy that wasn't available, you know, like all those guys, you know, the entertainment industry pretty much told me that that was what I was supposed to be attracted to. Yeah. And, and of course, they, if they, if yeah. you're good enough and if they like you enough that they will change for you. Right. It's about ego, right? <laughs> to a degree it's right. about ego, but it's, it's also like if we have, uh, you know, like say daddy issues, like if dad wasn't a around enough and we really want that unconsciously, we want that corrective experience. We want a guy to focus on us. Right. So we choose a guy that has energetically similarities to our dad to try and get that love from that person that has energy like our father, you know, mm -hmm. but we're not going to try to have a corrective experience to have a corrective experience, but you can't get water from that rock. Right. And so it's not until we start to heal that we choose a guy that actually is capable of giving the love that we wanted in the first place. Um, but if you go back to non-monogamy and you talk about attachment injuries, again, if you have a lot of attachment injuries, people have left you, neglected you, et cetera, you're going to st struggle with jealousy a lot more than someone that had a secure background, you know, because you're, you're going to have more things that get poked within non-monogamy because non-monogamy by definition, you're bringing in all these other people and it just lights up any unresolved attachment injuries that we might have. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be non-monogamous. Uh, it just means that we need to be aware of our triggers so that we can be as happy as possible within non-monogamy. 
I think it's interesting that you said that, you know, secure attachment folks can, you know, can really flourish, I guess, in a non-monogamy setting. And I feel like a lot of critics, at least that I've heard from of non-monogamy, say that people are doing it because they have attachment issues um, or are not securely attached, like who, like you can't commit to one person. And I'm wondering, like, how can we challenge that and fight back against that maybe false notion? Well, to me, that almost sounds like the, the same stereotype you hear about, uh, like porn performers, that porn performers become, go into that industry because they're, because of their injuries in the past. Right. You know, that's such a two, and, and I'd be happy to talk about that too. Um, but okay. So for one thing, let, let, for one thing, it's, let, let's say somebody does have attachment injuries. Um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of therapists would say that, you know, going into non-monogamy, if you have attachment injuries, is the worst thing. For you to heal, you need to have one person that gives you love and, and then you'll heal. I would mm -hmm. argue that if you have a lot of attachment injuries and you already have trust issues and all of that, sometimes having a, a security net of maybe, say, three partners or whatever the number is that you trust and love, then when you get into a fight with one you still have two others to lean on. And so your overall sense of abandonment might not be as great, you know? So somebody with attachment injuries, although they might sometimes get triggered a little bit more within non-monogamy, the positive side is that they're not going to have to struggle with abandonment as much in the sense that they have the security net of people that love them or care, or at least care about them, depending on what their non-monogamous structure is, you know? Yeah, um, I mean, I think my my view on like, I mean, look, we all have our own struggles, whether that be attachment struggles or past trauma or whatever. And so my view is if you find a way to have a corrective experience in some sort of alternative sexuality realm, whether that be non-monogamy or kink or sex work or whatever it is, some minority sexuality, um, and you're doing it, you know, in a in an informed way, in a way that's potentially healing, I'm a fan of that. And um, yeah. I think... Yeah, and I think that a lot of like sex negative therapists would say, oh, well, if we really do this attachment work or if we really find you a place of healing, you're not going to be interested in this stuff anymore. Yeah, I think that's bullshit. I think, <laughs> yeah. I think that's bullshit. I think that's say more, bullshit. say more. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, that's complete bullshit. It, it's like telling an artist, well, if we healed your trauma and your backstory, you wouldn't want to do art anymore. It's who you are. Mm -hmm. You know, it's yeah. who you just, you know, it, it, it's ridiculous. Um, I just think I, so these people that say, oh, well, they're going into non-monogamy because of their attachment injuries. Well, so what? <laughs> yeah. One, so what? And two, uh, everybody has attachment injuries. You know, a lot mm -hmm. of people have attachment. It's, it's kind of like going back to the sex worker thing that I mentioned a, a second ago, people go, oh, well, they have attachment injuries and trauma. And that's why they went into being a porn performer I've been a therapist for 17 years and I can tell you there are accountants with horrible trauma histories across different types of professions. There are people with horrendous trauma histories, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, again, that kind of thinking is bullshit. You know, it's, it's, it's very two dimensional thinking, you know, but um, I know I'm being a little tangential, but if you think about the porn performer, let's say she does have a you know, attachment injuries and, and traumas. For a lot of porn performers that do have that kind of backstory, uh, they go into uh, sex work in the porn industry and um, 
part of what can be healing is that if they are in a position to say who and how much and when, they're taking the agency of their body back. And if they are allowed to, the more empowered the sex worker is, the more they tend to have a positive experience. So, you know, when you look at all sex workers, the ones that are the happiest and the healthy are the healthiest are the ones that can say who and how much and, and when, and they usually have a journey with that. And it's usually for a period of time, you don't really run into too many Nina Hartleys that are <laughs> doing, doing porn, you know, in their fifties or sixties. And they usually transition on to being a director of porn or yeah, you know, owning and running their own company their own company or doing a completely different career. Like many people switch their career, you know, three times over the course of their life. Um, but this idea that, you know, um, you know, they're just doing it because of their attachment injuries is ridiculous. You know? And I, so, I mean, I would love to hear what you talk about in your book in terms of this, or maybe this is more of the like non-monogamy 101, but I think people who are, you know, doing non-monogamy in a way that's sustainable and workable for them um, in my opinion, they've done a, a lot more work on themselves because it requires so much like communication and insight work and being able to balance everything in your life. Yeah. I mean, well, as you know, I mean, you've, you've been non-monogamous for a long time, just as I have, you know, I've been non I've identified as non-monogamous since 2003 and you see it all, right? You see people who are doing it well, where they're happy and their partners are happy and you see people that um you know it's a bit of a train wreck right so there's just like monogamy (laughs) just like monogamy just like monogamy right um you know and and the big difference is people that have that are doing it in a conscious way like when you think of that book conscious loving um that's such a great book where it talks about how can you go from being unconscious and reactive versus being conscious and both in monogamy and non-monogamy, there's a lot of unconscious reactive people that are just bonking around and hurting themselves and hurting others. So once you start to get these basic skills about how to be a conscious partner, then mm. that's part of what allows you to be successful in non-monogamy, you know? Well, not that I want to say that they're quote unquote, like wrong ways to do non-monogamy because there's so many different wonderful ways of doing it. But in talking about maybe conscious and unconscious ways, what would you say are some like non-ideal ways to approach non-monogamy or for folks who are, you know, considering that route? Well, I, I, I think that if you aren't aware, if you haven't resolved your, um, past injuries, then a lot of times you get triggered a lot, you know, like say your partner is like, uh, you know, I'm going to go out on a date with, whoever or whatever, and you, you catch yourself and you feel like you're having a panic attack. Like I have plenty of clients that are get into non-monogamy and they're having panic attacks and all of this stuff, you know, they have unresolved stuff uh, that is getting triggered that goes way back to their childhood, way before non-monogamy. Um, you know, for those triggers, you have to learn how to ground yourself because if you are reacting to your partner and saying, um, your feelings about them going out with this partner when you're about to have a panic attack. Um, you're outside of your resilience zone and your prefrontal cortex that allows you to negotiate between reason and emotion isn't isn't working so well in that in that place. So people that are um, and and you can't be in a conscious place when you're in such a state. So doing non-monogamy well has to do with staying grounded. So 
figuring out how to be grounded can be many things, whether you meditate or whether you journal, but you have to be conscious of your, what you're getting, what's getting triggered. And you have to have an awareness of how to ground yourself in your body and make choices from that grounded place. I want people to hire you. So I don't want to give away like all of your therapy secrets, but I wonder, <laughs> I wonder like, are there some favorite grounding techniques that, that you found really helpful with, with clients and, and learning some of those skills? I think the first thing is, um, especially within non-monogamy, but basically throughout your day, you should be tracking your body. You know, if, if, if you track your body, usually you want to track for the positive, right? Because if you're tracking for the negative, like if you catch yourself and you're about to have a panic attack, if you focus on your heart rate, you're going to have a bigger panic attack, right? Whatever you focus mm-hmm. on gets bigger. So when you track mm-hmm. for, if you notice a negative, it's just for the purpose of going, okay, something is wrong right now. It's not for the purpose of fixating. But if you start to notice, oh, my heart is starting to, to race or something, you could Say to your partner, if you're having an uncomfortable discussion within non-monogamy, I need to take a break. I love you. I'm not abandoning this discussion. Um, I'll come back in five minutes or 10 minutes or what, an hour, whatever it is. You go to the bathroom, go to take a walk, do some deep breathing, get more grounded in your body again, and then come back to the conversation once you feel that you're grounded and centered. You know, a lot of people don't do that. They just power through just uncomfortable mm-hmm. discussions uh, when they're completely dysregulated. Well, not just in non-monogamy, but in, in those types of situations and, and even sometimes in, you know, past relationships I've been in, I think what can happen there and what highlights maybe an attachment thing is let's say you're noticing that within yourself and you know that you need to take a step back and take a break. If you're having a conversation with someone who's having some unresolved attachment anxiety, they might cling to you more and be like, no, you can't leave me in this time. Like you, they feel like you're abandoning them just because you need to take a break to sort of ground your nervous system. Right. Right. And, and so I think there's a lot to be said there. Um, one is, um, you know, figuring out how to do a proper timeout versus and having an agreement as a couple regarding that or with your partners, if you have more than one partner, and, and also hearing their need that they don't want to feel abandoned. So to me, like, if you think about the kind of timeout that people usually do in an uncomfortable discussion with a non-monogamy, they're like, mm-hmm. fuck you and storm out and slam the door. <laughs> yeah. right? right. Right. Then you feel like shit. Right. <laughs> right. And this happens within monogamous relationships as well. But yeah. if you have a, if you have an agreement in your relationship where it's like, okay, we know that we're not going to go through this, you know, discussion about revamping our relationship agreement within non-monogamy or whatever, it's not going to go well unless we're grounded. And um, so let's make an agreement that if one person needs to take a, a time out, that they will, but they'll do it in a kind way. So uh, a, a kind ask for a time out is something, something to the degree of what I said, you know, I, I love you. I'm not abandoning this conversation. I'm not abandoning you. I'll come back in an hour. So basically you're saying, I, I still care about you. I'm not breaking up with you and I'm not abandoning this issue because those are the three things that people get scared about when someone takes a time out. They think, did they just break up with me? Do they hate me? Are they disrespecting my need to talk about this? You know? Um, So there's a proper way to do a time out. And then the person that is 
left behind, they should be able to, they need to be able to let that person go. And I, I talk to my clients about this because if you're like blocking the doorway when somebody needs to take a time out, uh, you know, that can be really destructive. But, you know, if they understand the purpose that they're not being left, uh, they're not being rejected, then they should yeah. get to a point where they can allow for that. And then it sounds like it would be important to help the person who's maybe on the other end of the needing a break time um, to find some ways that they can like practice like self-parenting and self-care and like resiliency and what they can do in that hour while they're waiting to like resume the conversation. Absolutely. I mean, just as a general rule, to me, that's almost a, a larger conversation where you can say to, to each other, okay, with, with the understanding that there's a certain point when any couple or, you know, um, gets to the point where uh, they're so mad that they're like, don't touch me. Right, right. <laughs> but, if <you> get, <laughs> but if you get in front of that, if you're having a hard conversation within non-monogamy, um, there's certain things that can be very grounding. Like if um, you're, if you need to say something difficult to your partner and, and you're like, okay, this is hard for me to talk to you about, um, can you just spoon me while I talk? Can I be the little spoon while I tell you about this thing that hurts me within non-monogamy? You know, like being, you know, having that being the little spoon and being held while you say something vulnerable about your non-monogamous experience can ground both people or sometimes just having a hand on someone's leg um, or cuddling up to each other. Just like body contact is the most effective thing. Mm -hmm. Way more, you know, it, it's even more, it's way more effective than words usually. And I've tested that out with my clients over and over and over again. They're like, yeah, I just feel myself calming down, you know? And so that's a conversation they should have in advance about how to ground each other when they're having hard conversations. I mean, you, I know you do some um, EMDR training work and uh, trauma resiliency model work that we mentioned in your bio. And uh, for those of you who aren't aware of what that is, um, feel free to check out the last week's episode um, with Adri Alejandre to talk about trauma work and stuff. But you're talking about the importance of like being in your body um, yeah. and how that can really take you much further sometimes than just talking. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if you start to understand neurobiology, you understand that when you're not in your resilient zone, uh, then the way your whole brain functions shifts. As, mm -hmm. I, as I mentioned, you know, the um, prefrontal cortex that helps you make good decisions isn't working. So if you allow yourself to get dysregulated, you may catch yourself calling your, your girlfriend a cunt and then wondering why you did that the next day, you know, right. or, or mm -hmm. an, an asshole or whatever. And, and the reason you do something that's outside of your normal nature is because of all these physiological changes that happen when you allow yourself to power through a discussion, even though you're completely dysregulated. It's like if, if you learn how to stay grounded, your non-monogamous relationship will go way better. <laughs> What are some other common things that you see with your non-monogamous clients or, you know, struggles or things they do particularly well or things that they're, you know, mostly struggling with? Well, I would say like if we imagine, you know, uh, a basic X and Y axis, like or, or let's just talk about a continuum line. And on the left hand side are basically your your swingers, your lifestyle type people, the, the kind of people that are sexually non-monogamous, but emotionally monogamous. 
And then on your far right, um, let's say three fourths down is, is your basic poly person. And all the way down is like, say, a poly person that's living in a household with kids and, you know, a whole family. It, it's that continuum to left to right is kind of like a risk continuum. And it, it, one is not better than the other. It's just like everybody has their degree of risk that they're comfortable with. As soon as you let love on board, there's more risk of people getting hurt. There's also more chance of bliss, right? It's like a high yield stock, you know? So a lot of people don't realize what they're getting into when, say, they go from just doing swinger activity, which is still you can get hurt within that. But the, the, the injuries I see within the swinger world are less. Um, as soon as people start playing separately, um, one, of the, one of the dangers that I see is that, especially a long-term couple, is that um, the outside partners end up being like sexual primaries, you know? So regardless of whether you say to yourself, well, we're going to have a hierarchy or we're not going to have a hierarchy, what I see happening is, is when people play separately is that their outside lovers end up being sexual primaries a lot of times. Now, the problem with that is that the, prim- you know, the nesting relationship or the primary relationship, they usually fall in love under a, a love language that's beyond the famous five, which is carefree, fun, carefree, fun and adventure. And, and they love being viewed as this fun, adventurous partner. That's how they fell in love. They fell in love at Burning Man or the dungeon or at the non-monogamous party or whatever, you know? And when all the sudden, <laughs> One of the cliche you know, places where, where we meet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so when all of a sudden they're, they have noticed that they have become mom or dad, this gatekeeper that can say yes or no to whether their partner gets to see a lover. All of a, and, you know, they're like, how did I end up in this role? You know? Right. And, oh, by the way, being mom or dad is a completely desexualized place to be. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. sometimes they're not having sex as much, blah, blah, blah. So I talk to my clients that if they're going to play separately, it's so important to get in front of that before you ever get it go, going and make sure you say mentally connected, emotionally connected, and sexually connected, you know, because if you're maintaining that, then these other people can just be additions, like, you know, wonderful additions in your life rather than something that starts to chip away at your nesting partner relationship. And how do you encourage people to do that? Because that, that's something I face with with my clients as well, but I would love to hear your your route with that. But basically, for people who maybe are feeling lost or aren't as familiar with non-monogamy stuff, um, when Kate was talking about like sexual primary, to me, that kind of means like you have this primary partner, maybe you live with them, and that's your, there's maybe like a hierarchy, and that's sort of an agreed upon main person. And then what can happen when you introduce a new sexual partner outside of it, when you're playing with them individually is it's like any new relationship. Like it's maybe more exciting. There's more hormones going on. It sort of becomes more of like a sex vacation romance. And then your primary partner is the person you pay your mortgage with, you do your taxes with, you clean up after your animals with. And so how do you make the connection as exciting with that potential primary person um, as it is with this new partner, yeah, and new energy. Well, I think one one thing, even before we talk about that, is you know, let's say two people are in love and they have outside partners. I think when they come to their partner to say, "I want to go see my outside lover," um, how they ask or how they introduce that matters. 
if they are asking for permission, like you would um, a mom or a dad, that's not good. Like if you're saying, uh, like, can I please go? I finished my chores. Yeah. Yeah. If you're just like, um, is it okay for me to go spend the night with Molly? You know, uh, you know, that's kind of how you would ask mom or dad. Do I have permission? You know? Yeah. Versus how would you ask a business partner? You know, um, I, I have this person in my life that I'd like to see. I'm just running it by you. Does that conflict with anything in your life? I don't know. The languaging is just different. You should be asking your partner more like from the standpoint of a, like a like negotiation, a, a negotiation, like a, like you would a business partner almost versus how you would ask your mommy or your daddy, you know, like asking, it shouldn't sound like you're asking for permission because that's mm-hmm. just that language between the two of you matters. Um, but in terms of ask, you know, addressing what you brought up, like how do you keep things hot? I think part of the problem is if you're living with someone, it's like the normal rituals that you have when you're not living with someone uh, gets disbanded, right? Like if you're if you're single, you get home from work and you go through the process of switching over into your sexual goddess or sexual God before they ever come and see you. Whereas if you're mm-hmm. li- living with someone, they're watching you walk yeah, around taking like, a shower, waxing your butthole, like what, you know, what yeah, scratching your ass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I think part of it is like, I, I always encourage people to try and get ready in separate rooms to carve out a, a time to see each other and not make it force fun, like not be like, this is the time that we must have penetrative sex, you know, no, it's like, this is a time to to be erotic with each other. And carve out, carve out that time. And also, I talk to people, I, I agree with Dan Savage about fuck first, you know, it's like, be careful before you with, eat. Or yeah, yeah, just be careful about that. Because especially long term relationships where you're so comfortable, people have a tendency to stuff their face and then just pass out. And they're like, damn it, we didn't have sex. <laughs> You know? Yes. Oh, I, mean, I know. It, I definitely it, know. Yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. So you have to be honest with yourself and, and, and say to yourself, okay, how can we up the eroticism? And you might even want to separate sexy, uh, scheduled sexy time from a date night because it's, or, or for us women that love to doll up, it's like, we don't want to doll up to go out to the restaurant and have our dude like screw up our hair and everything before we go to the restaurant, right? And now we have to get ready a second time, you know, for some of us women that are a little bit on the uh, fancy side, you know? Um, so sometimes it might be better just to schedule sexy time separate from date night, you know? That's another thought. If you're somebody that falls into that camp, you know? Yeah, I mean, well, shoot, none of us are going out now. So it sounds like separate, <laughs> at least doing, if you have space in your home and you are living with a partner, at least trying to like get ready in separate rooms for your special time. Yeah, yeah. Something that allows you to transform and then appear as a sexual god or sexual goddess, you know? Mm-hmm. To have that transition where you, your partner is, is seeing you morph into a different side of yourself. It goes back to what Esther Perel talks about, like, um, you know, uh, that intimacy, you know, that just basically love is the known, you know, knowing that your partner is going to show up at the hospital or what have you when you're sick. But eroticism is the unknown. 
sometimes what we look for in like a solid partner that we know and trust is going to be there can sometimes feel like the exact opposite thing that the exact opposite thing that makes us feel erotic. Exactly. So how do we combat that? You know, it's like, some people think, oh, well, I need to figure out how to recapitulate, recapitulate the new relationship energy or limerence, which is that chemical cocktail of low serotonin that makes you obsess and the adrenaline. I mean, it's literally a natural drug high that fades out. And now we just have the oxytocin, you know? Right. Um, yeah, there's nothing like it <laughs> except cocaine. Right, right, right. And so it's not really, <laughs> I mean, we can't, you know, so some people are like, well, jump out of an aer- airplane and then fuck or you know, go have an orgy and then come home and have sex with each other. Okay. Yeah. You can re-stimulate that new relationship energy by doing those kind of high energy or um, unique experiences, but how sustainable is that? It's not, you know? So I think it's better to figure out how to work with what we've got, which is oxytocin. So what things uh, work with what we've got, the oxytocin, that's more like uh, really psychological BDSM or, or Tantra. Those are two modalities that a long-term relationship can use that are harmonious with what's going on with them physiologically, you know? So I think the part that always, um, I don't want to say confuses me, but gives me pause is, is the sort of hierarchical, hierarchical non-monogamy in that, you know, what if you make this agreement with somebody that you're like, okay, we're not going to let ourselves have emotional connections with other people. So whether that means you're swinging or in the lifestyle or you're in a hierarchical polyamorous setup, um, how is that something you can control? Yeah, you can't. Yeah. I mean, basically anybody who says either I want to have a hierarchy or I don't want to have an hierarchy, both. I, I have compassion for that. And, and I hear you, Mm -hmm. I, I hear the person saying that, but there's a little bit of, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of bullshit in a way I hate to say, because it's like what ends up happening is, you know, like I said, if you, it depends on your relationship model, but let's say you have a hierarchy and you have a primary and you're like, I'm just going to stay in love with you and you're going to be primary in all things. When you have that second partner, they naturally become primary in certain camps. If you say you're not going to have a hierarchy, you know, um, that doesn't, that's not really what happens either. You end up being kind of primary to your partner in certain ways. You know, that's, that's what I see over and over again. No, you can't control love. You know, it's like, I've had so many couples say that. And I always, the thing, the thing is, it's like, we grew up listening to Oprah talk about monogamy. We did not grow up listening to someone talk to talk about non-monogamy. So people don't have this internal knowing that a therapist just needs to unveil. There's a lot of thoughts that people have that are just ideas that they have that may be wildly inaccurate, like we can control whether we fall in love with other people. You know, I've, I've, there's, I've heard so many, I've heard of stories of people that have really tried to keep boundaries. Like they're like, okay, well, I'm going to keep my partner primary. So I'm just going to be a single male playing with other couples and they're in love with each other. So there's no risk there. That's so boundary. There's no way I'm going to fall in love with a woman in this threesome situation. And it happens, you know, even in the most boundary controlled situation, people sometimes fall in love. Mm -hmm. You know, I think boundaries can help, but you know, like, like I said, with swinger, you know, type stuff, there's less injuries that I see on that side, but it doesn't mean that 
risk goes down to zero. (laughs) So what would you say to a client? I mean, I don't know, maybe you would go to a place of being like, hey, look, that's bullshit. (laughs) How do you meet them where they're at to maybe challenge that hierarchy if they're like really committed to wanting to stick to this hierarchy? Well, I mean, I, I talk to them about all of this stuff, but I also talk to them about, okay, well, let's talk about this idea of falling in love with other people. Um, you know, it, it, sometimes that can be lovely, right? I mean, you know, it's like people are scared of falling in love with more than one person. But, you know, I really unpack that. I'm like, so what? what is it about potentially having feelings for your other lovers that is so scary? Mm-hmm. Um, because once I start talking about it, a lot of times people are like, okay, well, maybe we can do that. Maybe we, hey, maybe I just thought that it would just blow up everything, you know? And, uh, I always, I just unpack that. I'm honest with them that yes, it's more risk. Yeah. You could meet somebody, fall in love with them and decide that you want, you want to live with that person, that you'd rather be married to that person. It could happen. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you just can't control life. Even if you decide to be monogamous, you can't control whether your partner is going to fall in love with somebody else. Right. Right. I mean, I, I and I think been, in trying to control that, it would create some resentment. Exactly. I mean, I, I have a, I like a lot of things about Buddhism, you know, to me, if you imagine that you're standing in front of a stream and everything going by in that stream, the little leaf and the little fishy and, you know, like everything going by, you can appreciate, but you don't get to keep anything, including your own life, right? Mm -hmm. So with that knowledge, what can we do? We can just appreciate things as we have them, um, rather than trying to cling on to things, you know? Yeah. Or this idea of like ownership, like your mind, which can be a fun thing to play with, like in kink of like saying that, but this like real feeling of like this person, I own this person, they're mine, unless right. you're like a owned and collared sub. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's definitely a place for that within right. them in, a, in a scene. And, and if you have a daddy little girl thing going on or whatever, you know, um, that's a different conversation, but um yeah, within within non-monogamy, uh, these if you're making a rule from the standpoint of fear, that's something I'm going to unpack and look at. Ooh, I like that. You know. So, what are some other things that that you talk about in the book? Uh, well, a lot of the things we're talking about right now, I, I definitely talk about in the book. So, I mean, it's like um, so beyond uh, attachment styles and attachment injuries, I do talk about. Uh, communication, which we've already been talking about and the importance mm-hmm. of, you know, like if you, if you um, read books on communication, one, they're usually through, through a monogamous lens, like uh, getting the love For you sure. want or, or conscious loving. Um, but none of those books that I've run into ever talk about the fact that, oh, by the way, everything that we're saying will not work at all if, if you're not grounded, you know? And I see it all the time when I watch therapists in action. I'm like just last night, I was watching a famous, famous therapist, and he was working with a couple. And I could, I could tell as a trauma therapist that one of them was completely dysregulated. He looked like he was going into a panic attack. And yet this couple's therapist was just using his little bag of tricks that are specific to couples therapy and communication skills. He did not stop and said, okay, let's do some deep breathing together, you know? Right. Um, let's, let's calm your nervous system down and then we'll, so proceed. they weren't even able to hear him. 
Right. They were probably dissociated, just fixated on not having a panic attack in front of a hundred people, you know, and they looked like they were, you know, listening to the person, but I could tell that they weren't present. So to me, that's one of the things that's lacking across the board in most uh, communication skills books. Um, you know, like even Harville Hendricks, you know, he did the Imago dialogue, which is the premier communication technique for couples therapy, you know, mirroring, validating, uh, empathizing. But he never talks, he never says, none of the shit will work if you are dysregulated. <laughs> yeah. So seems like a key, a key point. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's another part that I talk about in my book is just, you know, just all these strategies to ground yourself before you have a hard conversation within non-monogamy and how to do it within the discussion. Um, so that's another thing that I talk about. The beginning of the book is just kind of like the one-on-one stuff, you know, like how to decide if you're non-monogamous or not, um, you know, how to have a conversation with your partner, like all those basic things that are in any one-on-one book. I get through that pretty quickly, uh, you know, and go into the attachment theory, the communication stuff. Um, and then towards the end, I get into talking about kink and tantra as two ways for um, a relationship to stay connected when you're non-monogamous. And one thing I should say, the whole book, since Mike, you know, this is a reflection of my practice. So most people come in as an individual or as a couple, even if they have three, four or five partners. So the whole book is through the lens of the dyad, you know, um, with the understanding that you could apply all of this stuff to your other partners that you might have, you know? So, um, so I do have that section talking about kink and Tantra. And then towards the end, I talk about coming out, which is an interesting thing. I, I remember when I was first coming out, I went down to San Diego um, to a conference and I ended up talking to a gay sex positive therapist down in San Diego. And I literally, as I was talking to him, I started to cry because, and I was saying to him, I feel guilty talking to you about coming out as a non-monogamous person when, you know, he, and he was an older gay guy, you know, like mm -hmm. it, when coming out as a gay person historically in the past, especially was so brutal and, mm -hmm. and he was so kind. He was just like, Hey, you know, there's all kinds of coming out and you're coming out in a, in, in a way that's um, important and hard for you. And um, there's so many, do and, and since then, that's a big part of the work that I do, whether it's a sex worker deciding whether to come out to her family or to her boyfriend that she's a sex worker or an LGBTQ person or a kinky person or a non-monogamous person. These are all ways that we might uh, choose to come out. And I talk about how it's not, uh, uh, you know, it's one of those things that you can do by degrees. You know, you may just come out to certain people and I talk to them. I talk in the book about how, you know, you can test people out before actually coming out. Like if you're non-monogamous, you could say to your friend, oh, did you see that show on TV? Did you see the latest episode of Insecure that talked about non-monogamy? And if they say, mm -hmm. yeah, those non-monogamous people, they're just like crazy fuckers. They're just like, <laughs> they're going to destroy their relationship. Um, that might not be somebody you decide to come out to. Right. Um, or at least not as the first person you come out to. <laughs> Right. And, and then other folks, you know, if you're polyamorous and you're in love with more than one person, 
then you then it's more of a situation where you need to come out to people whether they're ready or not <laughs> because you want to take both of your partners to the Thanksgiving dinner. That's a whole different thing, right? Um, right. And and so you know, just I go through like what are some things to think about? What might you expect from your uncle Bob who voted for Trump? Uh, you know, how, how can you cope with that? How can you ground yourself after the discussion when it's been so hard and it was a bit dysregulating? You know, I talk about all those different aspects in that chapter. Well, I'm so excited to read the book and we are sadly running out of time, but I think all of these are great obviously input for folks in any kind of non-monogamy and even monogamous setup. And given that we're living in these like uncertain times, um, I would love to know if you have any tips for like navigating non-monogamy during coronavirus. Yeah. Well, I mean, of the people that I know that are non-monogamous, a lot of them, you know, like if they have a primary there or a nesting partner or someone they live with, they're kind of holding up with that person. And their other lovers they're getting online with or they're, you know, they're talking to more or whatever. But I, I see a lot of creativity. People, mm-hmm. you know, that's one thing about non-monogamous kink, all these alternative sex communities, they tend to be very creative um, and ingenuitive. And so they are already adapting and, and, you know, getting online. And certainly kinky people are having fun doing things online where they're the dom is telling their sub to, you know, do sensation, do this and send me a picture. Yeah. 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 yeah, All of that. So um, I I think, you know, at at this point we're supposed to completely socially isolate in our home just with one person, you know, or our family or whatever. So um, if we follow those rules, then we may not be seeing some of our partners, you know? And uh, so then we have to find ways to, stay connected with them, even if we can't see them in person, you know? Yeah. So get creative and send, send your most creative ideas to sluts and scholars at gmail.com. How can people follow what you're doing and stay tuned for the book release and all of that? Well, I am, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook on Instagram. I'm at poly kink sex therapy on Twitter. They won't let you do something that long. So it's poly kink therapy. And on Facebook, it's Kate Larie LMFT. Thank you so much for joining. Again, if you want to follow what I'm doing at Sluts and Scholars, you can find me on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars. And like I said, send those creative ideas over to slutsandscholars at gmail.com. Thanks so much for coming on, Kate. Thank you. Thank you, Nicoletta. Thank you for having me on. 